let me ask you, what would you say is the most stressful time of day for you? What would you say is the most stressful time of day for you? Uh, would you believe that researchers have actually discovered the most stressful time of day? True story. And not just a general time of day, but these researchers were actually able to pinpoint the most stressful time of day down to the minute. So let me hear you. What time do you think it is? When the alarm clock rings, okay. 5.30 p.m.? 3.30. 3.30 a.m. or p.m.? Yeah. <laughs> 4 p.m.? 1.35 a.m.? 7.49 a.m.? Anyone else? 11. 11? 3.31 p.m. <laughs> zero. Zero, right? <laughs> okay, are you ready what it is? 7.23 a.m. Yeah, very, very good, Jeff, very close. Published just last month, a London-based study of over 2,000 adults revealed that the most stressful time of day is 7.23 a.m. And as the report goes on to explain, this is due to the fact that a lot needs to be done in the morning, and there's not that much time to do it. Indeed, there are many obstacles that can make the morning stressful. And, and we're all familiar with these, like getting stuck in traffic, spilling something on your clothes, waking up late or being late for work, or when you get to work, struggling to find a parking space. For those that live in a city, sometimes public transportation can be canceled. These are just a few of the obstacles. But tell me, what do you think? Do you agree with the study? Is, no. <laughs> is 7.23 a.m. the most stressful time of day? Yes, during the carpet days, yes. But see what, let me ask you this. Do you ever feel like your entire life is 7.23 a.m.? You know, as your pastor, I'm aware that some of you are experiencing some significant stress in your life. Some of you are experiencing a health crisis in your family. Others of you are struggling financially. For some of you, a strained relationship with a family member is causing you much grief and pain. Others of you are worn out and fatigued from caring from an elderly parent. Some of you have anxiety about this upcoming school year for your child. Some of us might even have some stress about finding a new meeting place as a church. And in your honest moments, you'd have to confess that you don't feel peaceful. No, you feel like it's 7.23 a.m. 
You feel anxious. Now, I, I could be wrong here, but I believe that if there's one thing all of us in this room desperately want, perhaps even right now, and that would be to have a heart that is free from anxiety and worry. Oh, what we would give to have a calm and peaceful soul. Amen? Well, this morning, I want to direct your attention to Psalm 131. For in this text, we discover that David has what many of us desire and want right now, and that is a quieted soul. Think about this. In this psalm, David, we're going to discover, excuse me, is content. He's not anxious about the economy. economy. He's not fretting over his job. He's not irritated at his spouse or kids. Nor is he fearful of the future. No, David has quieted his soul. He is content. In other words, David possesses what many of us desire right now. I know what I desire. So the question I want us to consider this morning is how? How can we, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, how can we obtain this quieted soul that we see so beautifully described in Psalm 131? That is, how can we experience the same level of peace and contentment as David? And I'm going to suggest to you that the good news is we don't have to guess as that text answers the very question. Indeed, perhaps more than any other chapter in the Bible, Psalm 131 is a particular chapter in God's Word that is overflowing with encouragement for the weary. So if you haven't already, I invite you to turn there with me to Psalm 131. That's page 519 in that paperback Bible. And uh, as you're turning there, let me give you the context. As uh, Alex and Steve have reminded us of these last couple of weeks, uh, the book of Psalms, the Psalter, it has an intentional structure and you could even say narrative to it. The Psalms are divided up into five books. In our text this morning, Psalm 131, it falls within that fifth book. And as the superscription of this psalm makes clear, Psalm 31 was written by King David. You'll also notice that it's called a song of ascent. Psalms 120 through 134 are all called Songs of Ascent. And these, I understand these to be written, were written rather, to be sung by pilgrims as they journeyed to Jerusalem for the festivals three times a year. These, these are songs that are intended to help prepare us for worship. And Psalm 131 contains an important truth that is not only intended to prepare us for worship, but also instruct us on how to have a quieted soul. A quieted soul 
when even our circumstances are stormy. So if you would, I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read this short yet powerful psalm. David writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. This is God's good word. Uh, comedian Jerry Seinfeld makes the insightful observation that kids frequently add the word up to everything they say. Have, have you noticed this? This is because he observes that when you're little, everything is up, right? Your life is up, your future is up. Everything you want as a kid is what? Up. So this is why kids say, wait up, hold up. Mom, I'll clean up. Let me just stay up, right? Parents, of course, it's just the exact opposite, right? Everything is down, right? Calm down, slow down, come down here, sit down, put that down, right? Well, drawing upon the imagery of a weaned child, this psalm is an exhortation for Christians to grow up in their faith. It's a call to leave behind infancy, and instead, this text is a call to take hold of a mature faith. For as this psalm makes clear... A quieted soul comes from a grown-up faith. This I want to suggest is the main idea of this text. The peace and the contentment we want, we crave amidst the storms and the 7.23 a.m. moments of life. This psalm is saying that is found and it comes from a grown-up faith. As you no doubt notice, Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms. Yet I would suggest it's just as meaningful as some of the longest. Several commentators have pointed out, it's a short ladder that leads to great heights. But the way up is not easy. This psalm, it's a quick read but a long lesson to learn. In faith, it's the lesson I have been praying we as a church will learn as well. For in these three little verses, we discover how to have the peace and contentment we all long for. And based on the structure of this psalm, I want to suggest that the author, David, highlights three characteristics of a grown-up faith. These are the actions we must 
we must take, we must apply if we're going to have a calm and quieted soul. And the first is this. Notice, a grown-up faith, at first, it renounces pride. Because notice what David says there in verse 1. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Uh, Jonathan Edwards once presided over a massive prayer meeting. There were over 800 men in attendance at this prayer meeting. And during the meeting, a woman came up to him and gave him a message asking the men to pray for her husband. And as Edwards read the note, the note described a man who had become unloving, prideful, and difficult. Well, Edwards, he first read the note in private. But then he began to think that perhaps the man described was present at the prayer meeting. So Edwards made a bold decision. You know what he did? He read the note to the 800 men. And then he did this. He asked if the man who had been described would raise his hand so the whole assembly could then pray for him. 300 men raised their hands. Now, you know what I find most compelling about this story? It's not that 300 men thought they were the man described. No, what I find most compelling is that 300 men willingly raised their hands so they could be helped to eradicate pride in their lives. And friend, I want you to notice David exemplifies that same posture in the verse I just read, doesn't he? Indeed, I want you to observe how David is committed to killing pride in all areas of his life. And friend, if we're going to have a calm and quieted soul, if we're going to have a grown-up faith, then we must do the same. Notice how David describes pride. He speaks of it as having what? A heart that is lifted up. The idea being that at the very center of your being, your heart, the causal core, the motivational structure of your being, the, the thing that makes you tick, at the very center of your being, your heart, you exalt yourself. You are lifted up. You lift yourself up as the most important and most significant person in your life. And faith, you know what happens when your heart is lifted up? You stand in judgment of everyone else. I mean, how could you not? You see, the prideful person believes their thoughts, their opinions, their perspectives are the most important. They have an exalted view of themselves. I mean, I mean, think of how this plays out in golf. 
in a moment here, a bunch of us are going to go out to the golf course and tell me, guys, what happens when you hit a shot and it's going right towards the pin, but you don't see it land? And then when you walk up to the green, you don't see it anywhere on the green. Where do you instinctively look first? The cup, right? Right? Of course, I mean, I hit it flush. I didn't see it land. It must have gone in the cup, right? That's the first place. The first place we look, right? Yet consider also how a lifted up heart, and this is, this is, I think, which is very pertinent to what we're discussing this morning. Think of how a lifted up heart, though, produces anxiety and hardship. Often when a difficult situation comes upon us, when 723 strikes, and we're, we're in a stressful situation, we think we know what's best. That is, we believe we see the picture completely and that there couldn't possibly be another perspective. This is why then, when things don't go according to our plan in this hardship, we start to have anxiety, we start to worry, we start to have concern. In our pride, we think we see all and know all, and if things don't go according to our way, disaster is going to happen, and we start to get worried. Indeed, notice pride just isn't a lifted up heart, but notice David says, what David says in the next line, pride also expresses itself in eyes that are raised high. That is, you're wise in your own eyes. Uh, And my heart is lifted up. I exalt myself and then my perception as I'm wise in my own eyes. Uh, Two weeks ago, and this is part of the reason why we had so much luggage, but two weeks ago, we celebrated my father's retirement, the company my dad had worked at for over 50 years, generously put up all of us, all, if your last name was Wajniki, um, at a resort outside of Las Vegas. Because my immediate family, there's six of us, they gave us two adjoining rooms. Yet throughout the course of our stay, we kept having problems with the keys to our hotel rooms. Have you ever experienced that before? You know, you, you do it, it's supposed to go green, and it's red. Do it again, right? In fact, this happened to us every morning. And honestly, I was becoming increasingly frustrated about this. Because every time we left our room, we then had to go back down to the hotel lobby, talk to the front desk, tell them what was going on, and go back to our room, wait for the technician to let us back into our rooms. Well, at the end of our stay, just when I thought it was all getting resolved, it happened again. I was locked out of our room, except this time I was locked out of our room under a time crunch. And you know what? I wasn't thinking very Christian thoughts. I was growing angry at the incompetence of this hotel and their staff. And although I did not sin towards them in my speech, I definitely had a grumbling heart. And I was convinced because the problem was with them. This happened every day. Yet when the technician came to our room, we discovered that the problem had nothing to do with the keys or the locks on the door. You know what the problem was? It was with me. 
You see, the reason I couldn't get into one of the doors was because I was using the wrong key. And the reason why I couldn't get into the other door was because I had bolt-locked it from the inside before I left out the other door. Yet before that revelation, I was angry. And you know why? Because my eyes were lifted high. My heart was lifted up. I was convinced that I, I have all the facts. I see everything completely. It was the hotel's problem. And I have to tell you, listen, God wasn't in my thoughts, nor that God might have a purpose in this that wasn't in my thoughts. No, God had no room in my, in my heart or in my thoughts because you know what was filling my thoughts in my heart? My heart? Me. I was wise in my own eyes. And friend, I just want to invite you to consider, and then I could just drill down here for a moment. Friend, are you easily angered? Is anger one of your besetting sins? Do you, do you, do you have an overly critical spirit? I wonder if it's because your heart and your eyes are lifted up. Thinking you know everything there is to know about that situation. Think about in your marriage. Do, do you frequently get angry and upset at your spouse? Are you often critical of your spouse? What about at work? Do you stand in judgment over the thoughts and intentions of your boss and coworkers? Again, friend, I would invite you to consider that the source of your anger, the source of your critical spirit is a lifted up heart and raised eyes. That is, in your pride, you believe, well, I, I know what they're thinking. I know why he did that. I know why he didn't take that phone call or process that order. Or I know why she does that or why he does that. In your pride, you, you believe you know the thoughts and intentions of others. But friend, listen, you don't. You are not God. You not only don't know the heart motivations and intentions of people, but listen, you are also very limited in regards to your knowledge of circumstances. For notice, this is what David is getting at in the last line of verse 1. As several commentators have pointed out, when David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, you know what David is doing? He's acknowledging the fact that he has limitations and he accepts them. Do you? What if you accepted the limitations that you have as a finite human being in your marriage, at your job, in your church? Faith, David did not play God. No, he accepted that God is God and he is not. I mean, what's the, what's the age-old joke? What's the difference between us and God? God doesn't think he's us. Right? I love what C.J. Mahaney has said. He makes a really helpful insight concerning pride. He writes this. 
He says, pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. Faith, is that you? So so here's my question. Are you willing, faith, to raise your hand like those 300 men and ask for God's help to eradicate pride in your life. Because here's the deal, and I, and I hate to say this, <laughs> but you can't get rid of pride by yourself. You know why? Because we're often, pro- we're often blind to our own pride. We can't see it in ourselves. So you know what that means? It means we need each other to lovingly correct and point out the pride in our lives. In fact, if you really want to take this seriously, and I hope you do, I'd invite you to ask those in your community group, and then if you're married, your spouse, and I invite you to ask them, you ask them, would you please share with me any manifestations of pride you see in my life? And then when they share their thoughts with you, don't be defensive. Don't justify yourself. Don't blame shift. But rather, in humility, genuinely consider what they have to say. Say, thank you. I'm going to consider seriously what you've said. Because you see, Faith, the Bible makes a direct connection between pride and anxiety. Do you know this? Prideful people, people who are self-absorbed, people who are wise in their own eyes, they are anxious people. Likewise, the Bible also makes a connection between humility and peace. Probably the most explicit place is 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. A humble heart entrusts burdens and worries joyfully over to the Lord. A humble heart recognizes that it doesn't have the answer. A humble heart realizes, you know what? I'm not going to occupy myself with things that are too great and marvelous for me. I'm going to leave that into God's hands. You know, it it is a great and marvelous thing to get a new church building. I'm going to entrust that over to God's hands. It's a great and marvelous thing for my adult child to change his heart to return to Christ. That's too marvelous for me. I'm going to entrust that over to God's hands. This health concern that I have right now, that's too great and marvelous for me. I'm going to trust that over to God's hands. A humble heart recognizes that it doesn't have the answer, but God does, and they're content with that. So first, a grown-up faith renounces pride, but that's not all. Look at what David pens next there in verse 2. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Do do you know there are two body parts on every human being that never stop increasing in size? They continue to grow 
all throughout your life. And they're on your face. Can you guess what they are? What? Very good. True story. True story is, is obviously public domain. Everybody knows. This is, this is the case, uh, at least according to the top three search answers on Google. Your ears and your nose. Your ears and your nose. But do you know what's the one thing that ought to continue to grow in the Christian's life? Not according to Google, but according to Scripture? It's their belief that God's presence is greater than his provision. And here's the second action we must take if we're going to have a grown-up faith. Believe that God's presence to have God is greater than the provision of God. Indeed, I would argue that a grown-up faith knows this from experience. I mean, think, think of the testimony of Moses. Do you remember what God offered Moses in Exodus 33? Get a load of this. Do you remember this? God offered to give Israel his blessings and entrance into the promised land, yet he himself would not go with them. Do you remember this? I mean, think about that. God says, look, you can have the promised land. You can have a place flowing with milk and honey. You can have peace. You can have prosperity. You can have success. You can have all the blessings of God, yet not God himself. What would you do in that situation? Indeed, how would you respond if God offered you all his blessings, but not God himself? What if he offered you healing from your cancer? What if he offered you the children you've longed to have? What if he offered you the house of your dreams? What if he offered you a restored relationship with your adult children? What if he offered you a spouse who met every one of your needs? What if he offered you all these things, yet in each and every situation, you could have these blessings, but you would not have God himself? Health, prosperity, all your desires. What would you do? You know what Moses did? He declined the offer. And you know why? Because Moses knew that God's presence, to have God himself, is far greater than his provision. Indeed, this is also the testimony of the prodigal son in Luke 15, is it not? Think about it. At the beginning of the parable, how does the younger son view his father? The younger son values his father only for what he can give him. That is, the son valued his father's stuff more than the father himself, didn't he? Yet how does the younger son view the father at the end of the parable? He values his father more than his stuff, remember? So much so that the younger son is willing to go back to the father as a slave. Remember this? But behold what manner of love the father has given unto us, because how does the father receive him? Does he receive him as a slave? As a son. 
He welcomes him back as a son. You see, the repentant younger son understood what Moses understood and what this psalm teaches, and that is God's presence is better than his provision. And friend, I have good news for you. If you are in Christ, you have God's very presence with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen? By his spirit, you are wrapped in God's everlasting arms. The question is, do you believe God's presence in your life is sufficient? I have God, I have God through faith in Jesus Christ. Is that enough? So if everything else was taken away from you, you have God. Is that enough? Or like an unweaned child, are you still rooting around for his provision thinking that's going to be the key to calm your anxiety. I mean, notice, a weaned child is a picture of contentment. And an unweaned child frantically roots around for the breast and craves milk for his stomach. You know what's so beautiful about a weaned child? Is the weaned child simply enjoys the way it feels to be in the lap of his mother. He is satisfied. It's not about his stomach. It's about his heart. I want you to point out that this is something that has to be learned. Because notice what David says. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. That is, he had to give effort to this. (laughs) As, As all nursing moms will tell you, Uh, Weaning is unpleasant, both for the child and the mother. (laughs) But faith, please hear me. Weaning is a necessary part of our spiritual growth. And one of the important stages of faith development is the weaning us off of what is good so we may experience what is best. It's coming to the place to recognize that the giver of the gift is greater than the gift. For it's only in God's presence that true peace can be found, not in better circumstances. And and I think this text, written by David on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's pressing upon our hearts, do we believe this? I love what John Bunyan has said. He's insightfully written this. He says, if we have not quiet in our minds, outward comfort will do no more for us than a golden slipper on a gouty foot. Immature faith is marked by an unhealthy preoccupation with the circumstances of life. A grown-up faith believes God's presence is better than his provision. I recently read about a little girl who could not go to sleep without sitting in her mother's arms and listening to her read a story. However, uh, the mother wanted out of this bedtime ritual. (laughs) So you know what the mom did? She recorded herself reading a series of books, her daughter's favorite books. 
And the idea was that when it's time for bed, she would tuck her daughter into bed and put on the taped readings. And this worked for a couple of nights. But her daughter again insisted that she read to her. And the mom's like, well, what's the matter? And just, just push play and listen to me read your favorite stories. I know, I know, the girl answered. And then the little girl said this. She said, but the tape recorder cannot hold me in its arms. Faith, this is, this is a little girl that, that is exemplifying what a grown-up faith is. It, it values God more than his gifts. But then finally, I want you to know that a grown-up faith, it hopes in the Lord. Notice how David, after talking about how he's renounced pride in his life, how he has worked at valuing God more than his provision. Now he turns to the people of God and he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You know, last night I woke up, there was rain. We had a storm that kind of came through the area. I got a Notification on my phone. Maybe you did as well. In storms, uh, they can have um, a variety of effects. Uh, for example, do you know that storms can actually clear the air? Those of us who suffer from allergies, we know this. <laughs> storms can come through and clear off the air. But that's not all that storms do. According to Jesus, storms also do something very important, and that is storms reveal our foundation. They always reveal your foundation. This is to say, the stressful events of life always reveal what it is you're placing your hope in. And friend, my encouragement to you is that when those 7.23 a.m. moments continue to beat against you, I exhort you to take a moment and to look down at your feet and to ask, what am I standing upon? What am I actually resting upon for my foundation? Is it the Lord or is it, is it my own wisdom? Is my heart lifted up? Are my eyes high? You know, so often we can think that we're placing all our confidence in the Lord. We can convince ourselves into thinking that the Lord is our rock. Yet when severe weather strikes or 723 rolls around, it soon becomes apparent that our hope is in something else. And I just want to challenge us to believe the testimony of Scripture to believe the testimony of Scripture about what it says about God, that God is good and He does good. I encourage us to find comfort in the fact that through faith in Jesus Christ, God is always with us by His Spirit. Because unlike the frail things of this world, the Lord Jesus Christ has overcome the greatest storm of life, and that is death. Because you see, friend, Do you, do you know what our pride earns us? Do you know what our sin deserves? 
These are not trivial things. Our sin, our haughtiness, our pride deserves God's wrath. And please hear me, because of your sin, you are under the wrath of God and you're incapable, friend, of saving yourself. You realize this, in your natural state, in your sinful state, you, all of us, are without hope. And this is precisely why we need David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For you know what Jesus Christ did? Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross so that he might save sinful, prideful people like you and me. Prideful people who want his blessings more than his presence. Prideful people who have placed our hope in the things of this world rather than the Lord over all creation. Then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death and proving once and for all why he alone is worthy to be trusted. And friend, can I ask, have you placed your trust in Christ alone to save you? Or are you still trusting in your own righteousness? If I could just be as um, clear but as intent as possible, listen, friend, you can go to hell clinging to your own righteousness to save you, or you can gain entrance into heaven by putting your trust in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Which will you choose? You see, whereas we have been prideful, Jesus was humble. Whereas we have valued God's blessing over his presence, on the cross, Jesus Christ was forsaken, so we would never be. And for those who have trusted in Christ, he has given you his spirit, so he will always be with you. And then, listen to this, empower you to live a grown-up faith. How good is our God, amen? Faith, 7.23 a.m. will come tomorrow morning. Indeed, because we live in a Genesis 3 world, we're going to have a lot of 7.23 moments. But we don't have to give way to worry. No, may we all have a quieted soul this week as we lean on his everlasting arms. Amen? Let's pray.